Hello, and welcome to the Interintellect Hostcast. My name is Linus Liu. The Interintellect hosts some of the most interesting conversations on the internet. We have dozens of intimate salons and events every week where curious thinkers from all over the world gather to talk about a wide range of topics, from philosophy to technology to literature. Check out all of our salons and join our growing community at interintellect.com. In this episode, I talk with Alaka Halder. She's the director of a startup data engineering team based in Austin, Texas, with a background and deep interest in healthcare systems, economics, and cities. We talk about building digital communities, the continuing allure of big cities, and how to make hybrid events work, and more. And without further ado, my conversation with Alaka. Thanks so much, Alaka, for being on the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. So today we're talking about cities, about communities, and especially since the pandemic, one huge topic has been digital versus in real life communities. And I thought that one interesting concept about digital versus real life is the idea of proximity and the effects of being in the same physical space versus being in the same digital space and how these different parameters interact with each other. We've seen the proliferation of digital communities and the interintellect is you know, one such example, of course. Yet the early predictions during the beginning of the pandemic of the death of cities and people moving out of cities hasn't really proven to be true. We've seen a lot of people move back into cities really excited to be living in close physical proximity to each other. So the first question that I want to ask is, how do you think about the different types of proximity in terms of physical, digital, or otherwise? So when I think about proximity, especially with regard to a community, I think of it as the ability to have accessible, so low barrier to entry and repeat encounters uh, where you have a degree of agency over how you want a relationship or outcome to develop. So whether that's a digital community or um, a real life physical community, you could be right in the middle of it, but if you don't have that ability to participate, I don't think you really have proximity. I know that's a bit abstract, but for example, the way I think about it is if there's an online community that you're seeing evolving, whether on Twitter or Discord, but you don't understand the cultural context or you don't speak the language or you don't have the tools, you can't exactly participate. So I don't necessarily think that by default, um, we have greater proximity towards digital or real life communities per se. I think another thing I like to think about is what are we trying to get out of each type of community? I think at the start of the pandemic, um, some of the digital proximity that people were really excited about, I wonder how much of that was because of the stresses of the pandemic and how much of that is sustainable. So talking to friends who've managed remote teams or who've participated in remote communities throughout the pandemic, some of them have felt that even though it felt really close-knit during the height of it, a lot of that has died down as people try to engage with their cities more, go out and um, do outdoors activities, or uh, go back to religious uh, communities that they're a part of. And it's a lot harder to do some of that online, short of having something like, say, the metaverse. So 
to think about both types, I think, what are you trying to get out of each community and what does proximity mean? Um, I think digital and city communities can complement each other. The internet definitely makes it easier often for you to find like-minded people in the real world so that it would be harder sometimes to just run into them, but you can find an interest group and uh, then meet those people uh, in the real world. But at the same time, there are some things that are really difficult to get digitally right now. Um, if you were in the hospital, it would be very difficult to expect someone from your digital community to come and visit you short of doing FaceTime. Or I think it can be hard to have some of the, the serendipitous um, encounters that often evolve in the real world. Some of my closest friendships have evolved that way, um, whether it was sticking around to talk to the curator after a guided tour at an art show or talking to someone while waiting for the bus. And I don't think I would have found these people through an online community because we just don't have similar interests. But what we do have in common is that uh, we're excited to learn from each other, regardless of our interests, or uh, we live in the same neighborhood and have similar goals for how we want to see our neighborhood develop. Yeah, there's a lot of different things to touch on there. But one thing I think you brought up is this third type of proximity. So you have physical and digital, but I think the, the other type of proximity, I think you could almost call it cultural proximity, having a similar language, you know, being from a similar background, having like interests. And I definitely see that as being more important than just simply being in the same Discord channel or being in the, in the same neighborhood. But in terms of how these different platforms or physical spaces interact with this type of cultural proximity um, in terms of creating low barriers to entry or types of interactions that make it easier or harder for people to enter into these spaces and create human connections. Uh, I think you mentioned being in the same neighborhood allows this type of serendipity that I think is really important. But do you think that there is a way in which being in the same physical space and neighborhood and physical community or city makes it easier to create this type of cultural proximity as well? You have this idea of being a New Yorker or being you know, somewhere from the West Coast and that starting to breed over time a type of personality and just way of being that makes it easier to connect with those people and then make it, makes it harder to connect with the people from another city. I don't quite know how to verbalize this, but I think as humans, we pick up on a lot of nonverbal or non-structured cultural cues or environmental cues. And somehow that goes into how we communicate with each other and interact with our environments. And a lot of that can be very difficult to transmit in the online spaces that we have now. There's just not as many things to interact with in the spaces. Like if it's a text-based communication method, um, there's only so much you can communicate like when I think about real life conversations that sometimes evolve in a certain physical space, um, the fact that you have these shared, like small things in common when you share a space 
it can make it easier to just have initial conversations. Uh, you start small and then you dig into them and you can have a conversation. It's easy to participate in those conversations because you don't have to be an expert to enter them. In a lot of online communities, I find that it can be harder to enter unless there's a guide or people who are welcoming to newcomers and don't mind showing them the ropes or facilitating conversations and connections within the community. Uh, I've encountered some online communities where I've just been intimidated because it seemed far too close-knit for me to enter, even if they had intentions to welcome outsiders. Whereas if I'm going to um, an art show or um, I'm at the park, it can be easy to just comment on little things like, oh, I like that book you're reading. Um, this is why it was meaningful to me. Or what did you think of this show? It's, it's very easy to engage with something external to the community and bring that into conversation and let things unfold. With regard to physical, other physical cues, I think it's also easy in a physical environment to get a broad snapshot of how everyone's doing at the same time and get a feel for the room, the energy in the room, and then to act on it. Whereas it can be really hard in, say, like a text-based medium, um, which a lot of online communities are, where it's just like a stream and it's really hard to get that more global 3D uh, perspective on how things are unfolding and how you should react to them. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I think you point out a lot of important signals about what's important when it comes to community building. I want to also pick up on another really interesting idea in your first answer, which is about the different purposes or ends of communities and how that might also be affected by whether or not they're digital versus physical. There's a lot of communities that are you know, structured around their children's education, for example, or about mutual aid, or in religious communities, a sense of shared cosmic meaning even. Whereas I feel like, at least in my experience, that digital communities tend to be structured around similar interests or hobbies or career. And whether or not you feel like that's something rather contingent or that's something that's driven by the fact that they're digital versus in real life? Yeah, great question. I think a lot of that might change as we get better infrastructure. I think right now, a uh, reason why certain types of communities do better in the real world is just because of the limitations of the technology that we have. So for example, a religious uh, service or even a counseling session, I know t there's movements on that front in telehealth, but if you had like a group therapy session, I think it would be much easier to do that in a real life setting because there's only so much you can gather about the participants when you've got a bunch of people on Zoom and everyone's a tiny square on it. Um, with something like religious service, I think people get comfort and energy from being in the presence of so many other people. And that, that kind of closeness and infectiousness of energy can be difficult to replicate online. Um, I think talking to friends who've been uh, working remotely over the past couple, past year and a half or more than that at this point, it seems like at the start, people were bound together by the fact that we were all 
heading into this together and we were we had shared struggles and that bound them and even though it seemed like people were working remotely very well and there was a sense of community sometimes uh, some people have said that it seemed to erode since then as this has started to feel normal and the energy that people get from being around each other that started to fade i don't know if this is universally true or if this is these are just uh, stories i've heard Similarly, with something like education for children, I think it's really hard to, as you pointed out, that as an example where that can be a more real life community. It can be really hard to teach kids at a computer because they're trying to, a lot of children's education is quite tactile. They're learning how to make friends with other children, how to behave socially in a physical world. And kids get distracted. They don't want to be sitting at a desk uh, in front of a computer all day. So, yeah, I think uh, if the technology improves, if we can have Zoom calls within the United States where there are no lags and the audio is crisp, uh, if we can replicate some of the feeling of being in a room with multiple people, um, we might be able to have more successful online communities that meet some of the same goals as the communities that evolve and thrive in the real world with where there are more tactile things to consider. Yeah, I definitely think that the technological piece is really important. And talking about Web3 and the metaverse, obviously, I think it would be only speculation to, to talk about what might be possible in the next decade or so. I think one one other point that I wanted to ask about is in terms of the proliferation of just so many different types of communities in the past few few years, especially on in in the digital space. I feel like there's only so many hours in a day for a person to allot to, and how someone chooses to participate in the number of communities that they really can, I feel like is a really underrated problem to solve and whether or not there is a algorithm or a framework to think about what communities to participate and put in the effort and resources into, I think is really interesting to me, especially with regards to how easy it is to get into digital communities and whether or not we lose something in terms of how easy it is to just hop into a bunch of different things. And I think especially the way in which digital communities are totally voluntary and opt-in versus in the physical world where there's a lot of involuntary connections. And is that something that can be replicable in the digital space and whether or not that's something worth trying to preserve from the offline world, these involuntary ties to people who may be more diverse than the ones that you might voluntarily try to connect with in the digital world? Yeah, that's a great question because, again, when I think about some of the relationships that are really valuable to me, um, they're not people I would have found looking for my own interests, looking for groups where people share my interests or neighbors, for example, who might have completely different views of the world, might be much older or younger, who might have different political views and whatnot. But the fact that we live in the same space um, and are able to have patient conversations with each other and be curious with each other allows us to not only update our own worldviews, but have these meaningful connections. I do think it would be valuable to try to aim for more of that in an online setting. 
I don't have concrete ideas on how we might do this, but I've heard about I, things such as um, having like more online parks uh, that some people have talked about, like online spaces where people can just drop in and form connections. I think it would also be interesting to have more civic engagement happening online. So whether it's like roundtable discussions or having more focus groups, um, using the internet to bring people who are already in a physical place closer together um, and creating a space for them to interact with each other. Because right now, if you want to participate in a lot of local activities or um, civic processes, uh, you might have to take out time in the middle of the workday to go to city hall or vote or find information that's not easily accessible online. So I think that might be one way we can bring diverse uh, groups of people together. Yeah, and, and one idea that I wanted to explore is this idea of digital citizenship. I think that, at least in the real world, the idea of citizenship is that you, know, you belong to a certain place, which gives you certain rights, but also certain responsibilities mm -hmm. to participate and give back. And this feels, at least at this point, uh, maybe with Web3, it becomes easier when you have ownership stakes and DAOs and, and whatnot. But right now in digital communities, it's easy to just you know, leave, the, leave that space anonymously. So how would you think about creating the sense of digital citizenship? Is this something that can be instituted through protocols or is this more of a cultural practice that needs to get defined and refined by just the members of that particular community as it grows? Great question. I think it depends on what the community's goals are um, and what citizenship looks like in that community. If it's an online forum, citizenship could be as simple as moderating conversations, reducing spam, welcoming uh, new members and showing them how to interact with the forum and other members in it, helping to smooth out misunderstandings. That could be one form of citizenship. It doesn't have to be a protocol. With something like a DAO, for example, where participation might be more akin to some of the participation in the real world, there you might want to have protocols governing participation, who gets to vote, how many votes they have. So I, I think of creator cabins where, I, I, and I think of it because we did a salon on that decentralized cities, which was a hybrid salon, um, where some of the participants were in creator cabins and some people participated remotely. And there, the DAO members, it makes sense to have more of a structure because you are voting on the future of what this organization does, whether they build more cabins, whether it expands uh, who performs what maintenance duties because um, they're in the hill country you have actual real world maintenance duties to do like whether it's building trails or fixing the roof and whatnot so if it's a if there are physical stakes then definitely or if um, there's some kind of resource reallocation then it makes sense to have stricter protocols I think one of the biggest parts is I think you talk about you know, just having those physical stakes um, and, and creating kind of similar stakes in the digital world. And I think there's also the, the question about just how people enter and become members. Uh, and you, you, know, you talked about you know, having people who walk new members through you know, how to interact 
and how that mirrors how a new neighbor can moves in and gets shown the ropes about who's who and what's where. But I think at this point, it would be really great to transition to the next part, which you had already alluded to, which is about specific events and about hybrid events and how that offers a really great microcosm about the, the interactions and collisions of the online and offline world. And I just wanted to start with a asking about your experience personally interacting in a hybrid environment and what that's been like generally. So hybrid, I know that causes people to raise their eyebrows. It's not always popular. Sometimes it's a necessary evil. I think there are ways to uh, make it work, but I don't think it's always going to be successful. So Thinking just from my personal experiences, and I'd also love to hear uh, about your experiences and best practices, because uh, I'm always trying to improve hybrid experiences for people whenever they become necessary. Um, I found that it helps to have a lot of structure in hybrid events. So I try to think first about what meaningful participation might look like and what I'm trying to accomplish with the, with a hybrid event. I think hybrid social events can be really tricky. Um, so can um, fully remote social events, although gamers might disagree. I'm speaking only from personal experience. Um, I think when I organize hybrid events, I try to do them earlier in the day when people are more alert. Um, if it's a work event, because no one really wants to do a hybrid meeting or social event later in the day because they have to be more focused, they have to be cognizant of the people who are either not in the room with them or who are participating remotely, it just takes more mental effort. Um, I try to implement more structure. So if I figured out what the goals are, I try to send out an agenda with what I'm expecting from the different participants, how the event will unfold, when the breaks are going to be, and I try to keep some variety in it so that people don't get bored or kind of fall into a lull. I also try to make sure that the remote participants have opportunities to participate early on. This is just from personal experience where I found that in an online or hybrid event, if I'm remote and I don't speak up or participate fairly early on in the event, I start to zone out and it becomes increasingly harder. It might be different for other people. That's just my experience. Other things I try to do is like maintain the balance of hybrid and remote participants. If it's close, if it's too many people who are on site and just a handful of people participating remotely, that gets really tricky. Even if the divide is 50-50, it can get tricky. And I don't think hybrid events really work well for large groups, or at least um, when I've done it, because you have to figure out a seating arrangement where the people in the real life setting or in the meeting room don't have more opportunities to interact with each other than with the hybrid participants. Because if they start having side conversations or looking at each other, it's very easy for uh, the remote participants to get excluded or to shift away from the agenda. So I try to make sure that the remote participants are on a large screen and the real life participants are facing them rather than facing each other. I also try to actively moderate so that the conversation doesn't really go off the rails. Whereas with a social activity, often the best parts of the conversation is when it goes off into unexpected and fun tangents. 
audio and video are really important. And this also goes into why it's so hard to do this successfully in a large room or with a large group. Because even if you set up multiple mics throughout the room, you deal with issues like feedback, audio quality, being able to see the screen and not get distracted. So all of those are a lot of things to consider. You have to test that it'll all work. You have to make sure that your internet won't go down. I think it also helps to have a moderator who's participating remotely as well, whether they're just in another room in the same building or in another country or whatever, it doesn't matter. But that way they can keep an eye on the remote participants um, and make sure that they're in their shoes and they can make sure that they're getting everything they need. But thinking socially, I think it's really hard. It can be really hard to make it work. Some of my friends who during the pandemic had um, remote first jobs or started remote jobs actually ended up moving to the cities where the offices were located because they felt like they were being excluded from social events and some of the co-working experiences that they craved. That's a lot of really great tactical advice. Did you think that there's anything specifically for hybrid events that one should do other than the technological component? Because I think a lot of the, just the moderation and participation and structuring feels like they're universally applicable to any good meeting. Uh, It's just that maybe in a hybrid setting, it's extra important to make sure those are instituted, but disregarding the technological components, is there anything that you feel like is only would apply to making a hybrid event work better? Or is it just about being extra diligent about what would make any good meeting function well? I think it's, for me, it's been being extra diligent. I'd be curious to hear from people who um, feel like there are some things that apply exclusively, exclusively to hybrid events. I think the only thing that might be different could be that it's easier or, or that it's beneficial to have a smaller group. I think hybrid events work have worked best in my experience with groups of 10 or under. Greater than that, it can be tricky to moderate and it can be tricky to make sure that everyone's participating. But yeah, I'm curious to hear if you have any thoughts on hybrid versus remote versus IRL. Definitely. I am at this point working in the office most days a week, but we still have a part of our company that's distributed that once it goes more than a certain number of people, or if the stakeholders, the important stakeholders are equally distributed between in the office and remote, it's usually just easier to have everyone just hop in on the video call separately. And I think it creates a better sense of parity and, and just more, more of a sense of equality in terms of engagement and ease of jumping in and participating. That's a good point. I think most of the people I've talked to have mentioned that there's not really a good reason to have a hybrid event when everyone can just hop on remotely. I think in a couple of cases, it can be good to have hybrid events. For example, if there's there's a need for the people to have been on site anyway. Maybe you have resource constraints and that might be true of a startup. You might not be able to 
have everyone hop on their desks and call in and ensure enough privacy that way. But yeah, I think making sure that it's a good experience for the people who are participating, whether real life or remotely, um, it takes a lot of thought. And I, I think you have to be very diligent and remind people um, at the very start what the ground rules are and what you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And my sense is that hybrid meetings for, for a work setting is usually easier because these meetings are structured around a shared purpose and, and an end goal. At least I, I think all good meetings are. <laughs> uh, whereas for a social event, I feel like it's probably a lot harder to make a hybrid event work because a lot of the value add in larger social events are the spontaneous side conversations and being next to a person that you might not have talk to in another setting and making that connection and the disparity between the ease of making those side conversations for an IRL person versus a remote person. I think that's what makes it difficult. Is that something that you have a sense of how to mitigate or is this just a structural issue with hybrid social events that, you know, we'll just have to wait for the metaverse and put everyone in the metaverse then? Again, great question. With hybrid social events, I think, again, certain types of social events can work. So I haven't hosted any, but I've heard people have good luck with crafting social events. So if you have people on site and they're making something and someone's leading that workshop, then remote participants, because it's a community um, event, but at the same time, there's a lot of there's a lot you can do by yourself as well, like engagement that you get with the materials that you're putting together or what you're, whatever you're painting that makes it a good mix because it's not all conversation. There's an activity you're focused on provided you have the materials at home. So I've heard that those can work really well, crafting, art, anything like that. But with something that's like a happy hour, I have not been in a good hybrid or remote happy hour so far. I'd be curious to know if anyone's done those successfully, but I find them quite painful. Maybe in a hybrid happy hour, the remote people just have to come in two drinks ahead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And friends who participated in hybrid social events uh, have mentioned that it's not really much fun when you're basically on a screen and someone's just passing the phone around and you're just missing out. So I don't know how to do conversation-based hybrid events well. I think going fully remote for those might be better with prompts and breakout rooms and that way you level the playing field. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to wrap up, I want to ask a question about advice that you might give to a young person who maybe is in college, just out of college, even in high school, and wanting to explore and find the communities that they want to really set roots in. What would you think are the biggest things that a young person can do to, to find their tribe, find their community? Is it move to New York City? Is it surf some Discord servers? What were some of the highest leverage things that you feel like a, a person could do? Oh, that's such a good question because, and again, I'll have to think a little bit about this because I str I've struggled with this personally. <laughs> so I can only talk about what worked for me, trial and error. So for me, I think one thing I found out through trial and error, and if, 
if you know about yourself well in advance it helps what kind of environments help you learn and participate actively so some people are comfortable going into big or close knit communities and actively participating they have the personality or the confidence to do it for me i found that smaller groups where i can have um conversations with people that for me i find it easier to participate and participate in groups of like 10 or fewer people so yeah so i've tried to figure out what communities have been helpful for me or which have helped me grow or through trial and error and if you know about your personality and what communities allow you to participate actively in advance then that can be a good guide um knowing your interests in advance can be a good guide but i found that if i can have conversations in smaller groups that makes me more comfortable uh when it comes to participating so groups where it's based around a certain type of interest but i know i'll be able to talk to a smaller group of people and build up relationships with them through repeated interactions that's easier for me than a huge group where i'm expected to enter through like a big networking event or where um there's not really much of an onboarding process to the community those can be um a little nerve-wracking i think another thing that can be good for young people is to try something that you don't necessarily think is interesting to you or go do something where you're curious but you don't think that uh it's something that you'd be good at or it's a group of people you wouldn't necessarily interact with because those can be really good opportunities for growth one of the things that i started doing a couple of years ago is i started running i hate it i hate running um it's still not much fun for me but um there were people who were running and finding community in it and i wanted to see what that was all about and i started running with a group of women uh, all age groups different paces and that helped me find a better appreciation for why these people ran uh what bound them together their differences of uh, the fact that it was really a mental activity and a lot about making peace with yourself than fitness or beating goals or whatever so you can find a lot of unexpected things in unexpected places um another thing that what i did in college that was an unexpected source of community was i joined a cooking co-op and i hate cooking i still hate cooking i'm not a good cook but i knew that i did better in a smaller group of people so the co-op only had 30 people and that made it easier for me to form close friendships than joining something like an eating club or a fraternity or staying in the dining hall where there were a lot of people and i would feel uncomfortable going up and striking striking up a conversation awesome that's really wonderful so thanks so much alaka for being on the podcast it was a real pleasure talking with you and having this conversation thank you for having me this was a lot of fun